Thank you for tuning in to Tech United on Tap, brought to you by Tech United New Jersey. You're listening to a special episode from our Propelify 2020 series, and you can find more episodes like this on our website at techunited.co. That's techunited.co. This talk debuted at the fifth annual Propelify Innovation Festival in October 2020, where our mantra is to propel ideas into action. Enjoy it, and be sure to subscribe to be notified when new episodes go live. So excited to welcome Al Roker, who I'm sure you know from NBC, but may not know as well from Al Roker Entertainment. Joined us a few months ago. Really, really uh, thrilled and honored to have you back, Al. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm going to hand it over to you for our discussion on diversity inclusion in media. All righty. Well, thank you, sir. I appreciate that, Aaron. Uh, and welcome to Propelify. I'm Al Roker, uh, you know, co-host, uh, weather anchor of the Today Show. Also have a new book out. Uh, uh, you look so much better in person. True stories of absurdity and success. And, of course, uh, diversion, uh, diversity and inclusion in the media is today's topic. And we've got a couple of really special guests. Uh, Madison Merritt is... Uh, is with E1 Entertainment. She spearheads the creation, development, and sales of non-scripted series and content, leading the E1 development team in business growth. Uh, and, and before that, Madison was the founder of Mad Avenue Entertainment, because she's got the perfect name for that, uh, a company that she helped to develop TV, branded entertainment, digital content. Michael Smith is an old buddy of mine. I've known him over the years. He is now with uh, NPR. Uh, uh, NPR, of course, reaching 60 million people weekly on a number of platforms, including over 1,000 radio stations nationwide. Uh, I knew Michael when he was uh, with Cooking Channel, the Food uh, Food Channel uh, at, at Scripps Networks. And he's also at CBS, holds an MBA at the UC Berkeley and a BA from Stanford. And he is also a fantastic dad, So, uh, which I think is probably one of his uh, favorite pastimes. Uh, and building a better future for all is the theme here. Uh, recently, Citigroup uh, released a study looking at the economic cost of black inequality in the United States. Uh, the U.S. gross domestic product lost, get this, $16 trillion due to discriminatory practices. Uh, Propelify is a business-leaning conference, uh, and as Citicorp reports, the economy could see a $5 billion boost, $5 trillion boost over the next five years if you tackle the five, uh, some of the, uh, the main areas of discrimination against African Americans. So let's talk about diversity in the media. What's the role that the media plays? Um, and and uh, let, let, I, Michael, if I could start with you, uh, NPR is, is, is one of those organizations that has been so much a part uh, of of the fabric of America and, and leading discussions. And people have looked at it as kind of a, you know, a little more crunchy granola, liberal laning kind of thing. Um, as you got to NPR, what did you find uh, when it, it came to diversity and, and, uh, uh, and how open were they to trying to change culture? Yeah, you know, when I came to NPR, my perception was that uh, was really kind of an old perception of NPR. The kind of people think about the car talk guys or they think about uh, you know, NPR from the 80s and 90s and kind of uh, really targeting kind of the upscale upper west side white audience. 
And uh, I was pleasantly surprised that, that a lot of been going on within NPR over the last years to diversify not only the newsroom, but the content. In fact, podcasting has been a place where a lot of diversity has happened at NPR. We have uh, a podcast called Code Switches, which is actually the, one of the most popular race and, race and uh, culture podcasts in the country. We did a podcast last year called White Lies, um, which was all about the civil rights movement and, and a um, kind of a true crime story, a really neat true crime story. And actually was a Pulitzer Prize nominee and just a lot, of, a lot of great content going on within NPR. But I think the problem has been that uh, we've been very insular. You know, we kind of talk to uh, people talk about the NPR kids. They kind of grow up, you know, in the backseat of their car, of parents' uh, car listening to NPR. And, and we've really done no marketing. You know, I'm actually the only the third CMO that the company has ever had. Um, so our, you know, our big challenge is to let people know what, what we have and, and our mission has always been to uh, highlight diverse voices and to actually fill the gaps that commercial media uh, doesn't fill. So, um, so it's the good news is that we actually our research shows that when people come to NPR, uh, they actually like it, especially people of color. It's just that just our awareness, only 22% of people of color even are aware of NPR. So, so, that, so that's our big challenge. Well, given, given that it's been around that long, were you surprised that so few people of color knew about it? Uh, no, you know, I think because we haven't uh, had any marketing focus, you know, being a nonprofit, uh, a, lot, the, a lot of the money has always been reinvested into just more content. And then another thing that NPR has done over the years, which uh, sort of a double-edged sword, is that we really doubled down on serving the core group of people who had been donating and supporting NPR, who typically were um, more white and more upscale. And so we kind of, like I said, became a very insular, self-fulfilling prophecy of, you know, talking to people with the, that love you. So, um, but, you know, but the exciting thing is that now, especially in the, in the light of what's happened in America's racial reckoning over the last few months, new people are discovering this. You know, we, Jennifer Lopez tweeted out in June, you know, her top three podcasts for the summer, and one of them was NPR's um, podcast, uh, Code Switch. And within about two months, that podcast uh, tripled its audience, just because people didn't realize it was out there, you know, so, so, uh, so. Madison, let me ask you, you know, as, as we're seeing, uh, I hate to use the term woke, but you know, this wokeness, uh, uh, it, it, when it comes to Hollywood, you know, we, we've seen, you know, even though the perception is, oh, it's this great liberal bastion, and yet, you know, finding directors of color, writers of color, uh, things like that, you know, it, it, it really isn't that diverse. Uh, how much of a reckoning is Hollywood going through right now? A significant one. And I, I also agree with you about woke, but we are awakening, right? We are waking up. And I think that it is impossible for anybody to turn a blind eye right now. I mean, we had kind of the perfect convergence of, of COVID and, and, and everybody making us stay home and, and being able to focus and, and not being able to be distracted to see what was actually happening to black Americans and, you know, it, you know, kind of starting with the Amy Cooper of it all and, and seeing that she used the police as a, something that she knew would be on her side as a privilege, I think was the first. And then we moved into George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and Rayshard Brooks and, and Breonna Taylor and Jacob Blake. And it just has been unrelenting. 
And so I have found that networks and streamers and distributors have been very, um, have been very open to making sure that they want or saying, yes, we see this, we can no longer ignore it. Um, but they also are making sure that there are, you know, people of color behind the camera as well. I mean, if we look at Mulan and the outrage that happened with Mulan, because it's not just happening with black Americans, it's happening with all people of color and diversity, where, you know, the Asian community was outraged that there wasn't enough um, of, of their people represented behind the camera when it came to the making of that show. And so I think they're starting to see that the voices are being galvanized in a very powerful way. And we're just not gonna really take it anymore. And I think mm -hmm. that the fact that we have so much power, especially we have spending power, we have the ability to, to pull ourselves together and to work together. I think the networks and the distributors and the streamers are definitely in 100% saying it's time for a change. I have gotten so many calls over the past few weeks. One, you know, asking about what executives are out there who can, who is out there that we can can bring in and hire and not in just like lower level positions but higher level positions. I'm seeing it where I'm being reached out to networks because they want to reach to meet this black director or this black producer or this black writer. And, you know, I wish I had more names to give them, to be honest. I think that's really been the issue. I wish I had more names to give them. And I, and I think a part of that has to do with the fact that we weren't, you know, in order to make it in, there's a training that happens. And I was blessed enough to meet a person that was willing to teach me how to develop programming and was willing to say, I know you have absolutely no experience in this, but I see something in you and I'm gonna teach you how to do it from the ground up. And unfortunately we get comments like we did from Wells Fargo, you know, where, you know, there's not enough in the talent pool, but unfortunately we started off behind in so many ways and you have to be willing to say, I'll teach you and I'll take you up along the way. And I'm seeing more and more networks. I'm seeing more and more networks doing that. More and more Hollywood is doing that. Michael, does NPR in a sense, you mentioned podcasting, streaming, things like that. Is that, in a, a, a way in a, that you know it doesn't have to be this massively produced uh, uh, entity that you can produce programming by people of color for people of color at a at a and, and still have a quality but the the price tag for entry is is lower than it would say it would be for a television or a major motion picture. Yeah, yeah, on two fronts. Podcasts have been great for us. We we have a program called the Next Generation Greatest Program, which we've been doing for the last ten years, and and it's um, where we take uh, whether it's college students or young journalists uh, and creators and get them involved with our local stations. We have two hundred sixty four stations around the country, and uh, get them. You know, as Merritt was talking about the the exposure and the mentorship. Uh, and through that program, we have people now that are actually like program directors at WNYC and you know, in some of our larger stations. Um, so, so podcasting and audio is, is I think, a, a great way to get, uh, yeah, to get diverse stories told. And then secondly, we found that it's also a great way to get people into, uh, into our content. We found that you know, our most popular shows are all things considered in Morning Edition, which are two linear radio shows. Um, but those really appeal to older people who listen to the radio. And uh, the podcasts have been the place to get younger people who you know, are more into on-demand and more into digital 
and they that's their first exposure and then they after you know, listening to a podcast then they hear more and then they say you know i'd like to get deeper into uh and we, we have 20 different podcasts on things like science and you know history and culture and it's just sort of a gateway for them to get into the whole npr uh content mix you you mentioned online to, to, and this is to both of you uh is it uh easier now because of in a sense this democracy of online media whether it's youtube or TikTok or uh, instagram whatever that that young people of color can create programming that eventually makes it into more mainstream media absolutely i think the perfect example of that is awkward black girl with Issa ray um, you know, she started off on a digital platform and now look at her. She's a powerhouse on HBO. You see her uh, writing movies. You see her in movies and Netflix. And, and to me, she started off by creating her own lane. I mean, if you really think about it, we've been doing it in music. I mean, Jay-Z created his own lane. He, he started his own label. And now because of social media and because of the digital world, you are able to find content, build an audience where they want you. Drake did it with music as well. So absolutely that is happening. Yeah, I think in music, it's been you know, more democratized. I think the, the, one of the challenges with uh, film and TV is that those businesses are still so centralized. If you think about television, you know, it's three or four big companies, whether it's Netflix or Disney or NBCU or Warner Media, you know, that control so much of, the, uh, you know, of what we see in theaters and what we see on television. And those companies traditionally, you know, while the content has been diverse, the leadership is not. When, when I, I mean, I, you know, we, I, if you go to the, like the uh, you know, about us pages of most of these major companies and look at those senior executives or look at the boards in those companies, and you don't see a lot of diversity. I was just looking at the Disney page. I worked there in the 1980s, 90s. And um, when I was there back then, there was like, I think one out of the top 20 executives reporting to the CEO was of color. Today, if you look at their page today, there are four. Um, of 20. So there is progress. <laughs> but you know, America is 40% uh, diverse right now. And if, and, if, and if you think about kids under 18, those, it's actually a majority minority country now. So I would expect to see a you know, 10 out of 20 executives, not just four. Um, and I think it's one of the things like, that study, you know, like why the most, why we can't wait for a long time. These issues were things where people said, you know, it's the right thing to do. We ought to, you know, America has this debt uh, um, to African Americans. But you know now it's it's not even about morality. It's about it's a reality. I mean, you know we're we are you know like I said for under eighteen we're a majority minority country and we'll be a you know, full majority majority country a minority country you know within the next fifteen to twenty years. So you're basically unless uh, you diversify your content and 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 you can't make the good diverse content without diverse decision makers. You know green lighting and making making the products projects. Right. And, and and I will say we are woefully we are woefully underrepresented underrepresented in that aspect absolutely. And and what about workplace discriminatory practices? You know, as we mentioned before, Citigroup is trying to get people to uh, companies uh, addressing the wage gap that happens because minorities come in, or I shouldn't say minorities, but people of color come in, and and because they're, you know, they they haven't been in the workplace. Uh, a specific workplace, they're behind as far as the pay gap. Uh, what do we, when it comes to the media, we're just as complicit, uh, the media is just as complicit with that wage gap, aren't they? Yes. 
I, oh, Michael, I don't know if you want to jump in. Um, I don't want to cut you off. Like oh, no, I was just going to say that, that you know, one of the, 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 the tricky things with, with um, our business is that it's so relationship driven. It's so subjective in who to be, you know, the right one to get promoted and pay. Um, you look at businesses where it's more objective, like sports, where it's just about how good you play and how many points you put up. You see people of color do extremely well. You look at the NBA or the NFL and who gets the most, makes, makes the most money. But in our business, it really is about who you know and how people feel, of you, feel about you. And a, you know, a difficult statistic is that the, uh, there was an article in the Washington Post about this about four years ago, that the average white American, out of 100 of their friends, 91 of them are white. So their circle of people that they know. So when they look for people to hire, you know, who they're hanging out with, the picnics or just for fun, you know, the same kind of people. So if you're a person looking in and you're not getting, you know, that mentorship or that, uh, you know, you're not having, you know, lunch at the boss's uh, house on the weekend, you know, so that those are the those are the sort of the, the glass ceilings that have been hard for us to break into, and it makes it incumbent upon a you know, white leadership to. To realize they have to you know, go beyond and then uh, you know and really reach out to to to, to, um, to promote more diversity in their staffs because their businesses are going to perish if they don't. Well, doesn't it? Doesn't it? That that speaks to and to what you uh, and and both you and Madison uh, kind of alluded to earlier that if you don't have diverse management, people in the who in the decision making process who may have access, may know other people of color to bring in, you're, you're in a closed ecosystem. That's exactly right. And I think that, you know, something that's really important is that, you know, there's, there's to me, three ways that you can really help affect through equality and, and one is societal change, which is a huge amount of people. And, and we're seeing that in, in it's, and it can be very incremental and it's changed, but it's also mentorship. And really what's most important is access to capital. I think that when you talk about the wage gap, we, we, we also, you know, we can talk about the wealth gap as well, which has caused where you're not able to get to the schooling where you meet these people. These people are going to business school together. They're in law school together. They're in colleges together. And so therefore it leads into this thing where you're constantly playing catch up. And so for us and for me, what's really been important is trying to create something that would help to equal the playing ground and equal the playing field and something that, you know, we started at E1 and, or that I started and that E1 has gotten behind is an organization called Slingshot. And the reason I call it Slingshot, which is because you want to be propelled forward. So, you know, just like propellify a slingshot, you know, you have to pull, get pulled backward. And the only way you can really propel forward is by pulling it backward to its furthest tension. And then it gets propelled to its furthest you know, as far as distance. And I feel like we as African-Americans and black Americans have been really pulled back and tightened and now it's time for us to propel. And one of the things I've been seeing is all of these really pretty press releases saying, here's, we're gonna give a hundred million towards this. We're gonna give a billion towards that. The NFL just came out with something and Home Depot and Lowe's and, and so many corporations. But when you actually ask them, where has that money gone? They have no answers for you. And I feel like there is really no checks and balances system to try and help. And the truth of the matter is that we're all negotiating in a vacuum. When we negotiate our deals, Michael and, and, and everybody, we're negotiating in a vacuum. And, and, and you're hoping and that you're getting paid what a white male would get paid, but we all know that women make 72% of the dollar that a male makes. And I think that it will probably be even less for a black female or a black American. So 
it's just one of those things where you really are hoping that these companies are starting to be held accountable in some way to making sure that they even the playing field because honestly you know income gets you by but wealth gets you ahead and and right now we're just really just trying to get by and in order to change that we're going to need the help of corporations to hire us in higher level positions and to also share that wealth and put it back into black communities and black businesses so who who holds and michael you can take this who holds uh these companies accountable how do we hold them accountable well i think that the increasingly the employees are starting to hold them accountable this is a uh, it, it's actually it's a nice um side benefit of the diversification of society in general that you know 20 years ago 30 years ago when i got in the, in the industry there were only a handful of people that looked like me when i worked at young and rubicam on madison avenue back in the 80s now you know and npr some of our statistics i think you know almost uh, half of our new employees hired over the last few years are people of color. So it's a totally different um, uh, message we hear from them. The things that, that, you know, people from my generation, we would kind of put up with and microaggressions that we would kind of put our heads down and just keep going, keep going. Today's generation, uh, they're not, you know, they're saying, look, this is, this is our America. <laughs> we're not, we're not just going to be on the, on the margins uh, putting up with stuff. So you see almost like a new reckoning, like the Me Too movement happening, you know, and you see people like whether it's Refinery29 or you Condé Nast or ABC News, you see things being called out now and people being held accountable um, like they weren't, you know, five years ago or 10 years ago. So I think that's only going to continue. And not only that, to piggyback on what you're saying, I also think you're going to you're finding more people like Michael and myself who are saying, well, what can we do? Because there are not a lot of black people who are in our positions. And so, you know, one of the reasons that I started Slingshot was to be able to hold these corporations accountable. But not only did I start that, I went to my employers and said, I want you to be a part of it, too. So Hasbro and E1 have been very instrumental in making sure that we are able to to uh, to, to raise those corporate dollars in order to make it successful, because you're right, somebody has to hold them accountable. You know, Madison, prior to starting E1, joining E1, you had your own company, as we mentioned, Mad, Mad Avenue Entertainment. Uh, how difficult was it getting started when you began? And, and or would it be easier today, given the, the environment, to, to start off as an entrepreneur? Well, I mean, I think that's a very layered, that, that question requires a somewhat layered answer because obviously, you know, starting a business, you look at what's happening politically, you look at what's happening around the world. And, and you know, I think everyone should start a business, but I do think you should be aware of what's happening and if the world is kind of moving in your favor or not. So I think that in the next few weeks, we're going to really learn a lot about what's going to happen um, without making this a very political conversation. You want to feel like you can work hard and still win versus no matter how hard you work, you won't win. And I think that what our job is now as, as, as people who are in positions of power is to inspire people to keep trying because what ends up happening is that when you work hard and you feel like you won't win because the system is stacked against you you end up giving up so would i go out right now and start a new business for me personally no but i'll tell you why because i think my position at being an evp 
one of the highest level black people in, in the company around the world, has done more good and has done, has done more power when I've been able to introduce black writers, bring in black directors. You know, when everything happened with George Floyd, I ended up creating a project called Burden of Justice where I have George Floyd's attorney and we are now creating a documentary series that is talking about the injustice of America. And I don't know if I would have been able to do that as quickly. I got the E1 machine behind me. They made sure that I had enough funding in order to put together the right materials. They made sure that I had the publicity and they made sure the message was made across the board at E1 and at Hasbro, our, our, our parent company, and they all have come in behind me. So I do think that there is power in making sure that we have people in high levels of positions at companies who are able to affect change. So right now, no, I wouldn't because I feel like there's more I can do right now from the inside, making sure that I can bring people in. And, and, and Michael, uh, what, what do you think, where, what part does education play in, in this as you move as young people come up and are coming up through in, into the media industry, how important is it? Or are people even are people even looking at that? The, the people who hire, are they looking at, at the level of education or where somebody went to school? Yeah, you know, j j just to pick up on what Madison was saying, I think there's uh, different paths to making an impact on the industry. I think that you can do it through your own individual business. You can do it through working within uh, corporations. Um, so I don't think it's one path or the other, but if you are going to take the corporate path, education is uh, very, really, really important, especially now. Traditionally, it hasn't been as key to have, let's say, like an MBA or graduate degree because the industry has been so creative driven. And so it's more, um, you know, most people had maybe an English degree or it didn't even really matter. You just kind of got in and worked your way up, you know, through, through production. But now as the industry is so much more about uh, a combination of marketing and branding and technology, streaming and um, consumer, you know, relationship marketing. It's not just a, it's not just show. It's really the business part. And so it's really important, I think, to have uh, the education if you want to make it uh, on the business side. I mean, if you just, just you think about it, the CEO of NBCU, the CEO of WarnerMedia, um, uh, and the head of Hulu all have Harvard MBAs. <laughs> And then the head of uh, the CEO of Disney is also an MBA. And even people of color uh, who do really well, for example, like uh, uh, Perlina Abakwe, uh, Aboka, who works at um, NBC and Cesar Conde, who's, who's you know, a head of MBAs, all of Ivy League um, you know, um, Kareem Daniel, who's head of uh, consumer products at Disney, has a Stanford MBA. So um, it's, it's really important. And then, and then the fi final thing is I think as a person of color, I know from my own life is that, you know, and I think Madison you know, touched on this too, about how when she went in to get a line of credit, you know, we are always undervalued and, and marginalized and, and, and the benefit of the doubt is not given to us. So it's, it makes it even more important that you have those credentials because we're not going to get the benefit of the doubt, um, you know, when you're like, uh, you know, think about people like, you know, whether it's Jeffrey Katzenberg or, um, or um, Barry Diller, who were, you know, super smart, talented guys, but didn't graduate from college. <laughs> I don't think that would have been, able, been possible for, for, you know, for, for people like Madison and myself. You know, to, to wrap this up, um, looking forward, how hopeful are you that this, this, this treadmill of, of, of struggling as far as being a person of color, uh, 
in this industry may actually you'll be able to get off that and and find a path forward for people coming coming into it now how hopeful are you for, about that i'm i'm very hopeful because i like i was saying before i feel like we're at this tipping point where it's uh diversity has become this reality of what America is. For, 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 you know, most of my life, it's always been this sort of this niche project where there have been, you know, true believers who've been focused on it and everybody else just kind of checks the box and looks at it. And now it's, to me, it feels like it is, it is America. Think about if you're a, um, a Gen Z person who's in your late 20s right now, you know, the majority of your adult life, the only president you've known was an African-American man. So you've grown up in a totally different world than, you know, than that other generations. So the idea of, of, of systemic racism and, and injustice is something that it's just, you know, a non-starter with you because that's just not the world you, you, were, you were born into. I think a lot of us who are older, we're more uh, maybe um, conciliatory with it because we just always, you know, believe that, that was the world we lived in. So I'm hopeful the new generation, they just, they just won't put up with it. You know, when I see kids in Santa Barbara with Black Lives Matter t-shirts, you know, 40 white kids all marching um, uh, in, the, in white neighborhoods, I realize that this is a different time. Yeah, I, honestly, to echo what he just said, it's, it's, he said it perfectly. There's really not much to add. It is different. It feels different. It feels like a real change is happening in a real, uh, swelling of understanding and empathy and impassioned empathy is occurring right now. And honestly, I'm, I feel very lucky that I'm living during this time to be a part of it and to see it. Well, uh, Madison Merritt, uh, the executive vice president of development on scripted television to E1, and Michael Smith, the chief marketing officer of NPR. Uh, we were very fortunate to get your insights, really appreciate it. And, uh, also, uh, our, our friends at Tech United New Jersey and everybody at Propellify. And I hope you'll follow uh, us on Al Roker Entertainment at LinkedIn and alrokerentertainment.com. And don't forget, pick up your copy of uh, You Look So Much Better in Person. It makes a lovely gift. Aaron? Thank you all so much for being part of this conversation. I, you know, normally we ask the closing question, which is how can we empower the tech community to build a better future for all? But you all touched on a slightly different issue which comes up frequently, it just happened in another session, which is specifically what can we white males do to build a better future for all? Because you know, you all touched on this issue and it's come up quite a bit. There was a woman who just spoke about, she's a prominent uh, black businesswoman and all her white friends reached out to like, what she felt was kind of like, check the box, how you doing? And I relate to this issue. I'm not quite sure what to do. I'm very supportive of the cause. I'm trying to do as much as I can to, to empower diversity, but I'd love to know from you, what could we be doing? Well, I think I'll start with you, Al. Yeah. Well, I was going to say I think, and, and both Madison and, and Michael touched on this. You know, I, I think, like I, I've as of almost as a taking a stand at, at uh, when I was at NBC when they first started diversity training, ten fifteen years ago. I said, no, I'm not going. Uh, you know why? Because I'm used to dealing with you. You're not used to dealing with me. Uh, I went to school with white kids, Hispanic kids, Asian kids. I, I know what it's like to be one of only a few. You have no idea what it's like to be one or two of, of only one person. And, and, uh, and so uh, I think that, and, and I don't mean this in a, in, a, in a dismissive sense, Aaron, but 
when you you said a number of people have you know a number of us people of color got the call after George Floyd looking to help them and the fact is if you'd been living a life of diversity all along if you'd made an effort to reach out to people who are not like you then you wouldn't be in this situation and I think that's what people have to do and, and I I don't mean that you have to go out and say I'm gonna find me a black friend but I, I do think that that people need to reach out uh, you know and I don't mean to go on about this but you know I, I love watching commercial television because you see these ads and there's this perception at least on Madison Avenue that you see all these these, these parties and things that are going on in TV commercials that they're interracial couples and there's there are all these different people together at parties and then I go to these parties and I'm Deborah and I are the only black people there we have a party and we have black people white people Hispanic people I mean we've got what looks like what you see on TV that's not the way it is in America yeah. you're all invited to my next party which is reasonably diverse but we would welcome you there uh, you know, we, I know we need to wrap. I, I think we're a bit over on time, but Michael or Madison, anything you'd add on top of what Al just said? Yeah, I think yeah, Al really hit it. I, it, it I've, having worked internationally um, for major companies, it, uh, it makes me realize that uh, to Al's point, um, it, it's not it's not a, that that difficult. And when I when you see uh, American companies go into foreign markets where they see huge financial upside. They learn the culture. <laughs> they learn the languages. They they immediately understand how to like run a business in Turkey or run a business in China or run a business in India. In the States because there, I guess there wasn't economic value with these communities. <laughs> Didn't care. Um, well, that's because fifty percent of your future consumer is are the are these markets. So you, you got you better you better learn. Yeah, and Madison, then, I'll give you the last word. I, I know we do need to get going. No worries, I'll make it quick. I think that, you know, I, I agree with what Al and Michael said. And then to add on that is that I would put your money where your mouth is, meaning that, you know, you can have the conversations and go, wow. Like I get a lot of those like, wow, conversations, but I haven't seen any sort of mentorship, any sort of, you know, work in the community. You know, if anything, you all have the most access to capital, period. And the fact of the matter is, is that we need that. We need to bridge the, the, the wealth gap. And so if there are anybody in your, in your Rolodex, any companies that you absolutely might know who are willing to say, or like I could send you a whole list of companies. I even put the amount of money that they put, that they would give. Any access, any relationship that you may have that can put your money where your mouth is to really actually help our communities to grow and to be better and to build wealth I would say, let's do that. And awesome. I'm impressed that, that Madison went old school and said Rolodex. <laughs> <laughs> That's mostly how we invited everybody to this event anyway. So I am hugely appreciative of, 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 of you spending so much time with us today. We went a little bit over and I really, really appreciate that. Thanks for listening. Let us know your favorite takeaways on social media at We Are Tech United. Stay tuned. More of Tech United on Tap next.